Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. Episode 1, Using Research to Improve Schools, with Gareth Rain. Hello and a warm welcome back to the podcast where we are in our happy place right now. We're out on the road, aren't we? Yes. We are at St Peter's Roman Catholic Primary School in Cardiff and we're with actually someone who's becoming a long-standing friend of the podcast, Gareth Rain. How are you? Hello, I'm well, thank you very much. Thank you for third coming to our school. Yeah, third time and your first time as the kind of main draw. You've been on a panel, I think, twice, haven't you, for <laughs> yes. us in the past. Loving the background sounds of children in here. We always like that little bit of atmosphere uh, in the background of the podcast. Now, the reason we've come down here is because... Uh, We've had you on a couple of times, you know, we've had a couple of episodes recently where we've had school leaders talking about what they do out on the ground. It's often been framed by big questions around curriculum for Wales, but actually we thought it'd be worth just coming down and finding out how it is that a school leader up at the sharp end makes change happen in a school, uses research to improve things in a school does the thing that they do really so it's as a it's going to be the Gareth Rain show today <laughs> so I wonder if we could start by kind of having a little potted history of what has brought you to this particular hot seat in your career sure of course thanks Tom and thanks Emma uh, I've been a head teacher for 13 years and the last three years I've been head teacher at St Peter's School in Cardiff and I joined the school at a really interesting time both for this school and for the world. So I I got the job in December of 2019 and then joined the school one month into the first lockdown of April 2020. So for the first three months in this job, I didn't meet a pupil, a staff member or a parent. And so everything was done remotely. But alongside that was another challenge for the school. And that was that it had gone into special measures in 2018 and from just before that time through to when I joined the school, there had been five other head teachers. So I was the sixth head in around two years. So you're using the educational form of the word interesting, which means <laughs> incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, but with challenges come opportunities. And so great opportunities came with that. One of the questions in the interview, in fact, it was the presentation question, was how are you going to look at the recommendations of the previous inspection report and the challenges of curriculum for Wales and the conflict between them. So how will you make improvements in the school in that conflict? And of course, my response was there is no conflict because the recommendations are saying what the school needs to improve and curriculum for Wales was an opportunity for improvement in all schools in Wales. So I just really put the two things together and tried to channel the recommendations into the things that we could work with and and for in St. Peter's School. What I didn't anticipate in that interview was (laughs) that the whole world would go into lockdown situations and that would just add another dimension. But again, the challenges came with opportunities because whilst the pupils were at home and initially our teachers were recording videos and sharing work and then that became live teaching, it meant that the live teaching was mostly happening in the morning and then the pupils were completing tasks in the afternoon, ready for the teachers to be online and available to them to answer questions and so on. But it did give us more time for professional learning. And so we took that opportunity of having two extensive PL sessions a week as a whole staff and then other shorter PL sessions with just teams, so SLT or um, having chats with LLC leads in the school and saying, okay, what do you do for English? What do you do for Welsh and maths and so on? And so with, without those lockdowns, those things wouldn't have been so easy because teachers would have been teaching all day in a school. And how were you then able to sort of split the difference between coming in already sort of ha- probably having quite a strong sense of what works well, but also knowing that this is a brand new context that's been on a very turbulent journey you know so how do you sort of know right I'm definitely going to go after that I'm going to take a bit more time to think about that how did you make those decisions? So the recommendations had to be at the centre of it because the law says that it has to for a school in special measures and so we looked at what we needed to improve but the recommendations were extremely broad and so they included leadership, governance, teaching and learning, literacy, numeracy, Welsh, ICT and safeguarding. Full house. Then. So, <laughs> so, so that was broad enough 
for us to be able to say, okay, so we've got all those things. What has the school done since 2018 to, to demonstrate improvement in those areas? And then there is a difference between demonstrating improvement and actually making improvement. So what has really improved in that time within the school? Um, and how do we know? And then what do we think we need to do next? And so I was in a, a unique position and, and I truly mean unique position because it'll never happen again in my career and in most head teachers' careers, where the SLT initially said that we've had six heads now, including you. We've been taken in all sorts of different directions. What do you believe in and how do you think we should improve? And kind of let's do that. And so it wasn't exactly carte blanche because, carte blanche because there were things that have already started to improve in the school and I was able to build on those things. But it was an invitation from, from the governors and the teachers to say, what do you think we should do in those areas of the recommendations? And so I don't think I'd ever get that again. That's a scary position to be in. So what did you draw upon? What were you sort of, and obviously you've made it really clear that you had to sort of come at those recommendations, but what were you already sure about in terms of what might, work has got the best bets in terms of working yeah, in this and, context. And that's a great phrase to use is best bets yeah. because that you know the, the Dylan William phrase that nothing works ever and you know schools can equally make things work in their school. So for instance, I know that there are things that I have tried to do based on either research studies or actual practice that I've seen in other schools working well and have done a terrible job with that. I know that as a head teacher that's happened and I know that as a classroom teacher that has happened. So it's not that that thing was a bad idea, but maybe it just wasn't right for the place or it wasn't right for the children or the, the teacher and so on. But looking at those best bets of saying, right, okay, we know the areas of improvement and in this unusual situation that children are at home right now, what things can we work on immediately to try and have an impact? And so one of the things that this school needed to improve was the learning environment itself. And so despite the lockdowns, I, I was kind of allowed to, to have a few visits to the school and have a look at that learning environment and say, right, what needs to change? And it was a lot of it. And so I was able to look at previous experience as a head teacher, uh, the research that I knew about learning environments. And if I could just take a step back there, as head in my previous school, Equally, the learning environment wasn't great when I joined that school. And so I didn't know anything really about improving learning environments then. So I did a huge amount of study. So I went to visit other schools. I read whole textbooks for university students on um, school architecture. I talked to furniture designers. And so putting all that together about, gosh, eight or nine years before joining St. Peter's, I was able to bring some of that knowledge forward and say, right, Let's look at the environment. What are we trying to achieve and how are we going to achieve it? And then contacting Cardiff County Council and saying, we're in special measures. The school hasn't had money spent on it for a long time. What can we do together? And so they were some of the early things that we did. So, so around the physical environment. And we could do that during the lockdown. So schools were allowed to have people to come in and work on the building. And then alongside that was the professional learning I was talking about. So, so one of the early things that we looked at was how the school teaches reading and even though there had been work on the teaching of reading in the school, I knew that there was more that could be done. And so I spoke with the uh, what was called the literacy lead at that time. Um, and I spoke with the nursery teacher and the reception teachers and, and your one teachers especially. And knew that some of the practice was good, but some of it could, could be improved. And so did some work with some key people and then did a whole teacher session for the whole school on the science of reading. And so looking at um, what was already good in the school and then some of the things that could be improved. Um, so that, of course, involves things like decoding. But the science of reading isn't just decoding. It's, it's much wider than that. So the, the Scarborough reading rope and the simple view of reading and all those things and saying building on prior knowledge, for instance, is, is extremely important. Do we think about that when we're teaching reading? And, you know, orthographic mapping. And, and do we know what that means and how it can inform our practice? And so working with people in, in that very strange situation who are not in the building with children allowed us to then, when the children came back, kind of have a, a running start, really. 
Now, I'm thinking about some of our audience now who are going to be very, very new to the teaching professional. Perhaps they haven't even got themselves onto a teaching program yet. So they might be quite intrigued by the things you were saying about the learning environment. Now, you've just given us an absolutely lovely tour of the school and we've seen your learning environments. I wonder whether some of our listeners might be imagining that your classrooms are the, you know, whizzy full of things and gimmicks and sparkly things. But actually, it's a lot more subtle than that, isn't it? So just for the benefit of perhaps the less experienced listeners, could you tell us one or two of the kind of tips and tricks of what you did to your classrooms to make them more effective learning environments? Yeah, of course, Tom. So central to that, I think, is this idea that distraction is an enemy of learning and, and focus and concentration is kind of the best friend of learning. And so whether that's at home, in an environment, so it could be in a museum, in a park or whatever else, but of course in a school environment, how can we minimize distractions and how can we help the children to focus and concentrate? So what does the physical layout need to have and what shouldn't it have to help those things to happen? So there's a really good research study that was done by Salford University along with lots of schools in the Blackpool area, or gosh, about, oh, I'd say something like 2014-ish. And they came out with some really good recommendations for schools. And so the recommendations there are around things like the um, colours of the the walls and so on, about circulation within the school environment so that children know their way around and can remember where to go, especially in a high school environment. That's really important. But also things like lighting and acoustics. And so having some knowledge of those areas, I knew, for instance, that some of the classrooms were extremely echoey and that that was probably not great. And especially for children who maybe have neurodevelopmental issues, that is probably distracting from their learning because there's a constant reverberation in the room that isn't helping them to focus. So we were able to do things like install suspended ceilings and with uh, acoustic tiles and so on and, and look at the lighting so that they're no longer lights that have a refresh rate that is, is distracting. But they're, well, mo- modern lights now are great anyway. The LED lighting is, is great. So, so just replacing things that were already there, but would be maybe not thought about in terms of having an impact on teaching and learning, but actually is really fundamental to teaching and learning. Um, and then there's the, the physical spaces of not having things hanging down from every space of the ceiling or not surrounding every part of the wall with displays and having what might look beautiful, but is extremely distracting when you're trying to focus on a phonic lesson or tend to do with numbers or, or whatever it might be. So I don't know if you call it minimalist, but certainly allowing the teaching and learning to be the focus and not these bright classroom displays of primary colours because we think that's what children love when we know that young children for instance are often distracted by primary colours and it's often neutral or pastel colours that are better placed. Just going back to you then Gareth it won't have been lost on any of our listeners that you are obviously incredibly knowledgeable and research informed practice sounds like it's something that is a big part of who you are as a professional your identity as a head it, it seems to be a big part of, of what you do. When you came here to begin with what was the research culture like here was that something that was a priority for you and how did you sort of bring everybody along with you and give them an insight and empower them to have the set, to be able to talk about things the way that you just did? Sure. Um, I, that's I, No one's ever asked that question, actually, in the way that you just have. Go back to where you start there. You said about um, maybe being knowledgeable, but as so many much more intelligent people than me have said, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. <laughs> and so, so often you'll think, oh, I think I know a bit about that. I'd like to know some more. And then you read about it or you watch videos about it and you think, oh my gosh, that's different to what I previously thought or now I need to know more and then I need to know more again. And and you end up going down these rabbit holes of of reading more and more and more and trying to become knowledgeable in those areas. And so probably just kind of some of that for me is is a personality thing. Uh, um, I'm the kind of person that watched a TED talk and then read the whole book or the whole research study that was referenced in that TED talk. The TED talk for me kind of wasn't enough. And then trying to bring that into an environment is to not overload people. And I think I'd made some of those mistakes in the past where I'd been distracted and I'd read something and then I would say, read this. And then of course they're teaching all day in the classroom and then they have all the other pressures of home environment and families and all the rest of it. And then thinking that either they had just read it because I'd suggested it or not giving them the time to be able to go and read that. 
I'd learned from those mistakes in the past, I think. And so one of the things that I did when I came here was to say there are four critical books to the things that I think I know and the things that I believe in. And as an SLT, this is April, by September, can you at least read a couple of these four, please? And, and if you want some time, I'll try to help to give you that time to do it. And so all of the, the SLT members, there were seven on the SLT at that stage, they all had these four key texts. Um, and actually, I think the majority read all of them anyway. And then for the rest of the staff, it was initially about um, sessions of sharing with them online. So everything was still Teams or Google Meet at this stage or one of those kind of things. And so it was kind of providing praises and, and saying, right, these are the key points from this um, study or these are the key points from this book. And if you want to know more, they're going to be on the shelves in the professional learning room when you get back to school after lockdown and that kind of thing. Um, or watch this video because this video is eight minutes long and it's great. It covers so much of what you would see if you read the whole book. And so again, not trying to bombard people, but just trying to say, here are some key things that you can look at and we're going to be using these ideas in our PL sessions in the future. And so coming in, I suppose you've kind of really primed the pump with loads of knowledge there, loads of books. You know, you're asking people to look at things and... I suppose out of necessity, really, you needed to really lead from the front with that stuff coming into this, what you called an interesting uh, environment here in the school. I'm thinking about teachers' own sort of personal research and inquiry then. I mean, do you have a kind of way that you, you set up that culture where perhaps they move beyond the things that you give them and actually maybe bring their own things in then and, and potentially come and say, oh, Gareth, I think we should be doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I didn't, sorry, fully answer your previous question as well, Emma. So I'll try and tie those two questions together, really. And that is that, yes, if, if people have things that they believed in and that they wanted to research more, they were invited to do so. And then especially to have conversations about it and so on. But to go back to your question as well, Emma, there wasn't a great culture, I would say, of, of using research or any evidence-informed practice within the school. It was probably more of a culture of kind of do this because I'm telling you to do it. And so even though there, were, um, there was a great appetite for development and for learning, I just don't think it had, the, the, the school had been exposed to these ideas, really. And so what I was so impressed with the, with the staff here was just how much they wanted to know and wanted to learn. Out of a two-form entry school, there, there hasn't been one teacher or TA that's ever said, this is a terrible idea, you're putting too much pressure on me. And so that's partly, I think, because the front-loading of this is what we're probably going to do and this is why we're going to do it has been really important. So instead of just saying, this is a new program, can you deliver this in your classroom? It was always, this is what the research suggests might be the case. These are maybe the best bets and they might work and they might not work, but this is why we're going to do it. So we always started off with, and still do, we always start off with the why this thing is important. Why should we know about this? How can it be done? How can it be delivered? And then we go on to the what. So the what isn't where we start, it's never where we start. So I think then by the time we get to the what, people already know about the importance of concentration and focus, or they know about the importance of memory. Or one of my, my favorite things is building on prior learning. So, you know, it's one of our pedagogical principles in Wales. Why is that so important? Why is building on prior knowledge so important when you're learning to read? Um, and, and what role does that take in terms of vocabulary development, uh, as well as then being able to, to read the words on the page, the decoding as well. So saying this is what's important, um, sorry, this is why it's important, this is how we maybe can do it within our school, and now this is what I'd like you to do, or you tell me what we think we should do with it. And probably over the three years since, since kind of the school, children have been back in post-COVID and I've been here as head, I think that's probably the biggest shift of it being more led from the from the head and from the SLT or from the leader of that area of the curriculum to this is something we need to change. This is something we've identified as not working very well in our school. Let's have a look. What do we think we should do about this? And then now that being more of a collegiate approach of what are your ideas? What do you think we should do? So for instance, we just had an, an inset day on Monday and 
in the afternoon, all of the teachers and TAs were looking at our progression documents for Curriculum for Wales, and they were all looking at our last STP, which is just coming to an end because we have a three-year cycle. And we were saying, within your area, what do you know because of the last STP? What do you know is now working? What do you think needs to change? And then please send the SLT ideas about what you think we should be working on in the future. So those ideas will now feed into it. And so I know schools all kind of work in that way. If there is a cycle of evaluation and improvement and planning and all those things, and we're just working like other schools really in that way, so that the staff members felt empowered to be able to say, actually, this thing that we introduced 18 months ago, it was good for six months and now we've lost our focus. We think we need to go back to it. Or in those 12 months that we're not focusing on it so much, nothing's been lost. So should we even bother doing that anymore? Those kind of ideas. And and this might seem like a really simple question, but you know, how has that changed your staff? How do they feel now? What what, is, what are you noticing that's different about teachers in your school since you started? Definitely more knowledgeable and empowered. I think they would be the kind of two things. So they know why they're doing what they're doing. That's been the biggest shift that they feel that they they know the importance of. So something like retrieval practice, you can just say, here's some great books. Um, on retrieval practice, or here's a, a document that says this is the guide to retrieval practice in our school. But they know why it's important. So for our juniors, teachers this year, so in a kind of a, a curriculum for Wales world, we're still thinking of foundation and juniors just for the department's sake, because our school is built in that way, playgrounds, halls, those sorts of things. So we know obviously about the difference of, of you know teaching the children where they are and progression steps and all those kind of things. But in, in the juniors, the teachers had got together as a department and they'd said, we'd actually like to have a kind of collaborative focus on retrieval practice in our performance management this year. We think that we can help each other if we do it together. And the foundation teachers had done the same thing, but with outdoor learning. So that came from them. So that's what they wanted to do. They knew that there are two areas in our school that we've talked about and we've looked at and we've we've kind of done a few things to improve, but they know that there's more work to be done. And so... The response to that was, great, you know, what what do you need then? Um, and so for foundation teachers, for instance, they said, well, it would be great to talk to an expert in outdoor learning. So we, we got Craig Armager, who's great, to come in. And he did some work initially with just the, the leads on that. And then they looked at our site and they looked at what we already have and they looked at what you could do with where we are in inner city school in Cardiff. And then we looked at some texts and said, right, which books do we think we should buy that can help us? And it always comes back to books here at St. Peter's. What books do we think we should have? And and then we did a school visit. So again, the, the, the two leads on it went and spoke to an outdoor learning expert in another school and looked at the great practice that they're doing. And then they've put together an implementation plan of things that have already started to happen this year and where they think they'll take it next year. And so that has been led by by two people within the foundation team, but all the teachers working together in that way. And of course, they're bringing TAs within that work too. And in a similar way in, in the juniors, really, it was much more so actually in the juniors. It's the books that we want and we want to look at these techniques and we want to say, we, we had looked at some things to do with um, Rosenstein's principles two years ago, as did many schools around that time. How can we build on some of that work? We know this already. We know about recaps of prior learning. You know, you know, We know about all these things. What can we do next? And, and we were speaking just briefly earlier Emma, about things like interleaving and, and spacing and those kind of things. And they were thinking, OK, do we know enough about that to start to do something with it? Or do we not know yet? Where should we start and what should we do? That's interesting, because I, I, another question I had in my mind was about how perhaps staff that don't know sort of where to start when it comes to research informed practice, how do they sort of... <sighs> form a bit of an internal dialogue around well what does this mean to me and how am I going to make it influence what I'm doing in the classroom is there sort of a, a framework or anything that you use that provokes sort of critical discourse around the things that they're reading or is it this is the reading have a think about it you think you've, you've articulated quite a few examples of where they're starting to run with it now but how do they sort of critique it know where sure. to start so within those departments that I just talked about, because of the physical space of the school, we have departments in that way still. Um, they have departmental meetings, and and quite often departmental meetings can be about break time, duty timetables, and all the rest of it. You know, sports day coming up, but also it is about those kind of things. Okay, we're working on retrieval practice right now. What are we doing? Where are we going? What's working well? And so, even in those meetings that are supposed to be operational, 
they do sometimes then bring it back to teaching and learning as well, which is great. You know, if they're choosing to do that within those operational meetings, then that means it's something that they're choosing to work on and think about themselves. And then, of course, in our PL sessions, our twilight sessions particularly, they will maybe break off and into groups and, and do those sorts of things. So we have used um, triads in the past when we did things like um, the Rosenstein's principles. We said it's entirely up to you because, again, the teachers across the school had said we we want to focus on the principles but not all of them and so it was up to the staff themselves to say right three of us are going to work on this one or these two principles and another three on a different one and they chose that it wasn't just your one teachers together it was maybe your one on your five because they'd chosen a similar focus so that that has been kind of self-led really a, a kind of proper teacher agency of of them owning it and saying this is what i'm going to work on in my class and this is why i want to work on it and then trying to help each other thinking about curriculum in the kind of slightly bigger picture and trying desperately not to make this into a curriculum for Wales question because I sort of promised I wouldn't do that (laughs) thinking about the fact that you started from really quite a blank canvas here so you've obviously had the opportunity to really kind of shape the big picture here we've got kind of big big broad sort of broad brush stuff in the curriculum for Wales framework that gives us some some very very big picture kind of stuff but a a little bit light on detail let's say you've got you've mentioned loads of things there that have come from research which are kind of about strategies and approaches and ways to get the pupils to learn things in a in a really efficacious way thinking now because of course you were on the panel with lucy last time you were here thinking about that glue in the middle those sort of things that kind of unify those big big happy things at the top and those those quite quite operational things at the bottom there's quite learning and teaching things at the bottom what are the principles that you use to kind of make those things marry up what was the kind of process you went with what what kind of rules you there um maybe using an example of of how we often run our professional learning might help with that and then you can tell me tom if i haven't answered it in in a in a way that you would like maybe but if i take something like reading reconsidered which is a book from Douglamov and his team. It's something that we've used in our school, especially from a sort of around year two up. It's not really relevant so much into very early reading, but we've had PL sessions where our staff who were the leads for Reading Reconsidered have then undertaken training with the Central South Consortium, um, which has been very high quality training. They have then gone back and worked on those things within their own classrooms they are then the leads who are responsible for rolling out that kind of PL across the school with the relevant teachers. So they've had multiple twilight sessions where they've been able to roll out different ideas and different techniques, and then they've delivered those sessions. So they would have, say, a Monday in a kind of first week of February, and they would say, this is something that we're going to look at. Let's watch some videos. Let's practice it together. Let's do a bit of reading about this. We're going to come back in two weeks and look at it again. So then kind of middle of February, they'd look at it again. And then they'd say, right, when you come back after half term, we're going to give you three weeks to try and have a go with some of these things. Try them out in your classroom. See what you think is good. Try and work on that. What maybe worked first time, great. Try and build on it. Maybe what didn't work, have a go again. And then in March, we're going to come back as a staff. And then we're going to say, this is what we found. And then alongside that, we would then have some coaching sessions in terms of instructional coaching. So our leads for those things would then go into those classrooms and say, right, we would like you all to work on control the game um, within Reading Reconsidered, uh, and we're going to come and watch and see how well you do. And then they go into the classrooms and they say, this, this, and this were great. This is one thing that I noticed that I think you could do better with. I'm going to come back in two weeks and I'd like to see how you've improved that aspect. And then they go back in two weeks and they say, great, you know, th- this is now, or this is how you can tweak, or this is where you can build on it next time. And so that kind of model really of may- maybe some front loading of reading, but certainly the PL sessions themselves, the go away and have a go, try it out within your classrooms, the instructional coaching, bring it back, bring back evidence. We have lots of discussion. We have lots of uh, practice within RPL sessions. So people think about it as kind of role play. People don't want to do that, but it's not. It's rehearsal, which is a different thing altogether. It's not acting in a role. It's you being a teacher in front of your colleagues in a safe space before you're in the classroom with the children. And so that kind of a model really is how we do lots of RPL here. And so it's very thorough. 
it's kind of the opposite of maybe what I think about when I think of something from 10 or 15 years ago where I might have shown the TED Talk and I might have said, isn't this interesting? What do you think about that? And then we never talk about it again. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> now what? Yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. Um, or where you maybe went on a great course for a day and then there was no follow-up. And so it had no legacy. It maybe changed your practice for three weeks. It's not that. It always has legacy and impact. And then we're coming back to it and building on it and building on it. Yeah, it's accountability, but yeah, not in a way that is punitive. Yes. It is. It sounds like it's in a way that is empowering, is the word that you used earlier on. And I found that fascinating, actually, because it sounds like you're having much more success by bringing people along with you than telling people that they need to do it. Yeah, yeah, know? definitely. And, Which and it not being me. So, yes. so initially, those very first meetings online did come from me as the head. And of course, I was still establishing myself within people I had met physically online in these meetings. And so that that initially did come from me. But within months, it came from right during lockdown. Okay, you're going to be my teacher champion team. This is going to be something that's going to be central to our practice here. You're going to have remote training from Doug Lamov and his colleagues where God bless them, the teachers were willing to do training kind of six till nine o'clock in the evening because New York time, that's what worked for Doug and his team. And they went through these training programs during those lockdowns. And then it meant in September when the children were back in the school, we were able to just kind of go for it. That TLAC team felt empowered and confident and knowledgeable enough to start rolling things out immediately. And so they were they were the ones then leading that. So for those first few online months, it might have been me, but then right from that first inset day in September back, it was other people, it was their colleagues that they'd known for a long time with these new ideas and new things. And all of a sudden these people are experts and you think, gosh, you know, when we worked together last time physically, you didn't know this and, and now you're leading this. And And I think that was a nice way for things to begin and say, this is how it's going to be done from now on. And then to come back to that accountability thing, it is accountability, it really is, especially the instructional coaching and coming back to PL sessions with evidence of, I tried it and this is what I found. And you have to be ready for those conversations. It is, um, they call it accountability coaching as well in a kind of uh, a secular world. It is that kind of thing, but it's so non-threatening. It's, it, you know, it's such a a low level stress way of doing it. There's no anxiety that comes with that. The only anxiety would be, oh my gosh, I didn't do it and I can't bring it. You know, it's not, oh gosh, I tried it and it didn't work. That's fine. So they they would they would come back with those ideas or they would have that person come into the room to watch them and give that help. But that's what it was. And it, it is and has been seen as help and support. And I think probably that's one of the things that did take quite a while to change, maybe 18 months-ish, to change in people's minds of, oh, they're coming into our classroom again, they're going to watch me again. But once they realise they're going to watch me and they're going to help me with something, um, not, they're going to come in and tell me it wasn't good enough, that definitely was a change of mindset in the school. The whole change of culture of, they're coming in to help and support and advise, not they're coming in to find out what I'm not doing, um, was definitely helpful. We saw a lot of different kind of things going on when we went round on our tour. I mean, you've, you've made it really clear how important reading is. I mean, I remember on the last time you were on, you know, you, you said that there was a bit of a reading gap at the heart of the Curriculum for Wales uh, framework as well. But we didn't just see that. I mean, we saw everything from very, very directly taught, scripted, uh, structured writing lessons right the way through to some outside very physical activities and you made it clear how important that was for those pupils and you also made it clear you know that there were some real challenges facing some of your pupils as well particularly in reception so what governs that mix that they get because you must almost feel there's not enough time to do all the things you want to do how flexible is it how much is it driven by the the teachers how much by you how much by the the pupils, how much wiggle room do you get? And I ask this as a novice question from someone who has the luxury usually of only worrying about one subject. Sure. Uh, so, so timetabling is the, is the biggest headache in in any school, I think. <laughs> um, in an, a Catholic school in Wales, if you compare, say, for instance, in England to a school that's not a Catholic school, we have ten percent of our time is RE plus substantial, you know, acts of worship that that are kind of acts of worship every day. And then, of course, there's Welsh that is a priority in all schools in Wales. The pressures on the curriculum are great. And so you do have to make choices. You do have to say, right, we're going to be doing, spending more time on this in our school than they might in other schools, and quite the reverse. In other schools, they might be spending more time on something else, and we're just not going to do that here. And so, so those pressures and those decisions are are quite significant, really. And, and they probably form the heart of what you think is your priorities in a school. 
because if you're spending time on it, you think it's important. So some of those things you saw Tom and Emma outside were to do with our SAQ program. And so even though we call it SAQ here, so speed, agility and quickness training, actually it would be better described as fundamental movement skills. So one of the things we noticed in our pupils was that probably post lockdown, where they'd been stuck in their houses, but also societal changes of body shapes, fitness levels, will to exercise, interest in in physical development and so on, was something that we knew that we wanted to try and improve. And one of the things that the school had adopted pre-COVID was the Daily Mile. But what was so interesting to watch, I think, and this is something that didn't happen straight away, in fact, it wasn't something that became a priority for, for kind of two years of being in the school, was just how poor the application of the Daily Mile was here. And that's one of those things where I think some schools have had great success, but here it wasn't very good. And so the minority of pupils actually ran the Daily Mile. The majority walked it. One of the observations we had made, which was really interesting, was that particularly girls who wore knee-length boots were not interested in trying to run the Daily Mile because of the clothes that they were wearing, and that impeded their will to do it and their ability to do it. Most of our incidents of kind of behavior incidents were happening in the Daily Mile. So somebody pushed me, somebody ran into me, somebody said something to me. They were happening at that time. So not only was it not adding to the children in terms of their development, it was actually having a negative impact on the time it would then take coming in from those sessions to have to deal with incidents and so on. So we just said, well, let's not stop doing it. Let's think what we could try and do that has the same aims that's better. And so we tried to have a more holistic approach of saying, yes, it's about fitness, which is what the Daily Mail is trying to achieve, but actually, can our children catch very well? What's their footwork like? How agile are they generally? What's their flexibility like? What's their core strength like? So the Daily Mail can help with some of those things, but we wanted to say, how can we help with all of those things in a way that we know that will work? So what we found was that there was an organization called SAQ International, and they had worked in some schools internationally, but also in England with some videos they'd made, that they'd gone through a structured program through training and so on, and daily sessions of fundamental movement skills. And they had improved the fitness of their children, but also their wider physical development. And then that had had a positive impact generally on well-being, which had then had a positive impact on the children's ability to do their work in their classrooms. So it kind of, it, it met all requirements, really. Going back to the four purposes, it was meeting so many of those characteristics of so many of the, the ideas of the four purposes. And it's just what we want for our children. So we were willing to say, we're going to spend... 20 minutes a day in the juniors, Monday to Thursday, and 20 minutes a day in foundation, Monday to Friday, outside of their usual PE sessions, outside of other aspects of physical development to do with maybe dance and so on as, as well, where we're going to focus in a structured way on fundamental movement skills. And so what you saw was a year one class taking part in these sessions. We brought in uh, an Olympic strength and conditioning coach we paid quite a lot of money, as you might imagine, for this training. They had, we had a whole day session, a practical session for all of our staff members, head teachers, TAs, teachers, everybody in the school took part in this. And then we were able to then say, right, this is what we've learned on that day. Here's some other study guides that come along with this program. Here's some other SAQ books that come along this program. We're dedicating curriculum time to this. We're trying to say we're building up our knowledge an understanding of how to do this well and less structure it that makes it work. And so that was introduced in September. We did the training last summer and then it's been a huge success. So the children absolutely love those sessions. It's something they look forward to every day. In fact, if there's ever a trip or something else that you're doing, which means that you don't do SAQ, they say, we haven't done it today. You know, we miss SAQ. And it means that because we did baseline testing in the first week of the year, and then we did interim testing in February, and now we'll do end of year testing in July, we'll know what a difference it's making to those fundamental movement skills. So I know that was quite a long answer, but it's, again, how we've implemented something here. You said something um, before we hit record that struck me, and we can edit this out if you're <laughs> not happy to answer. But you mentioned that people working with you to advise you as a head teacher often find it difficult to 
give you things that will help you improve because you are a really self-improving school from the sounds of it because of the things that we've talked about a lot on this episode and I just wondered like on a personal level as a head teacher what could someone on the outside do to challenge you like where do you feel you need to go next to get better and and what can you tap into to find out what that might be oh gosh there's on a, on a very personal level, I mean, just me, there's so many things that I need to do better. And on a school level, there are always things that we need to work on. So right now we're creating that new three-year development plan and our priorities and so on. And sometimes when it comes to something like, say, Reading Reconsidered and the way it's been delivered here, we might have some external scrutiny of that. And they say, great, you're doing all the things we want you to do, um, kind of carry on. <laughs> or it might be a, a visit from an improvement partner or that kind of thing. And then sometimes I think it's just that we work in a, in a slightly different way to other places. It's not that it's perfect, it's just different. And I think St. Peter's in some ways does look different to other places because we would say we're not an inquiry school, but inquiry forms part of our practice. So our pupils here, lots of our topics, our domains as we call them, are teacher-led initially. We say, why on earth would we start off with a question of what do you want to learn about this? When the children don't know anything about it to start with, it's just false. So our pupils will will initially maybe have some ideas and grab their enthusiasm and do whatever it you know it takes to want them to learn about it. And then we teach them the things we need to know. And then when they've got a good knowledge, then we say, okay, and now which of those aspects that you've learned about would you like to know more about? And how are we going to give you the research skills to be able to find out more about those things? So to come back to that original thing I said, we're not an inquiry school because we don't work in, in maybe a, a different kind of an inquiry way. We still then have inquiry because following all of that kind of knowledge acquisition that's come from our structured curriculum and our teachers and so on, we're then giving children opportunities for inquiry. And I think that's different maybe to other places. And the use of scripted lessons here is not um, the majority of the day, every day, but we do use scripted lessons where the teacher will read from a script and not divert from that script. And again, you don't see that much, I would probably say in Wales, but certainly not in primary schools in Wales. But we know that the impact that it's had has been great. And so somebody coming in who maybe is not used to seeing scripted lessons might look at that and think, gosh, that, no, that's not how I would have taught. But then if you then can show results and impact, and then they say, why would I tell you to stop doing that when I can see that the children have now made huge progress? And I think that's probably the challenge is we, we just do things maybe in a, just a slightly different way to lots of places. But how does one challenge such a challenged a, a head teacher that challenges himself as thoroughly as you I'd love to know like what are your aspirations um but by just saying how do you know how do you know it works how do you know what evidence mm, have you got so, so you think that you know this is working but how do you know so what can you show me that says SAQ actually is making a difference to the children and why would you want to spend 80 or 100 minutes a week on that when you've got three languages to teach when you've got 10% of RE why is that enough of a priority? And so those kind of things go right back to the heart of our curriculum vision and model of how we do things and why we do things. And then saying, do you think this is the best use of your time? Do you think this is what you should be doing in this school? Um, do you think you really should have scripted lessons? So so I can actually bring up an example of, of, of that maybe from our youngest children in full-time education. And that would be that by now in the year, our reception class are listening to a script being read to them. Like a story, though, really. It, it's very much like sitting listening to a story, but for around 20 minutes on a carpet session that would then have also some maybe word-level work or some other kind of phonics work. And and so I know that in lots of places they would say four- and five-year-olds shouldn't sit on a carpet for 25 minutes at a time. This is not what we should expect to see. And I would say if you tried to do that from the off, for a four and five year old, it would be nigh on impossible. You're going to have terrible behavior, lack of focus, their physical development won't allow them to sit for that long. But actually at this stage in the year, because they started off with two and three and four and five minutes and then built up, and we now know that the majority of the children in the class can engage with these really exciting stories that they're listening to that are building up their knowledge and understanding of really interesting areas of the curriculum and they're building up that knowledge in such a good way. If you go into reception now, for instance, and talk to them about plants, they can tell you so much about plants because of the way that we teach and what we teach. And, and again, to come back to that idea of, but why do you want to do that? Or some people even might say, but it's harmful for a five-year-old to sit on the carpet for 20 minutes. Actually, I don't, I don't know that it is. We know that the 
SAQ sessions. We know that the rolling and the swinging and the high climbing and the balancing that you saw outside of the SAQ in their play, all of that still goes on. But when it comes to what we call our domain units, when we're trying to build up their knowledge of plants or animals or people who help us in our community, they now do sit and listen to these wonderful stories for that length of time. And it doesn't harm them in any way. And yet, with the demands that we had with our reception class in September through to December, you would have said it would be crazy to try to achieve this. But we built up their ability to sit and listen to focus in a structured, intentional way. And so I'm quite happy to be challenged on by anyone listening to this or anyone coming into the school. Why would you do that with a reception child? Why on earth would you do that? And then I can say, because the output is this, the, out the outcomes are this. We're doing no harm and we're actually doing a lot of good. So circling all the way back now to the beginning where we talked about this idea of starting almost from a blank canvas, I'm just thinking about the point where this episode is going to come out. We're recording at the kind of tail end of the summer term, but it will come out quite early on in the new academic year. And Emma and I will be sitting in front of a whole load of brand new student teachers, blank canvases for the profession in, in some ways. So thinking about where they're going to go, they're probably feeling a little bit scared right now listening to this. They've got nine months ahead of them in which they have to learn the kind of nuts and bolts of teaching, but they also need to develop a philosophy, a philosophy and they also need to develop the ability to continue to improve once they leave us. How about some top tips for some new student teachers for what they should be doing, what they should be caring about, how they should be setting off on that nine month journey so that it becomes a much longer one. Sure. Um, one of the top tips maybe would be to not become an ideologue. So not become somebody who says that is the way you have to do it. So not to say this expert has said this is the way I must do it or this lecturer has said this is the way I must do it or this head teacher has said this is the way I must do it. So that's how I have to do it. So just keep on being open-minded to... That might work, but there might be a better way out there. And that might work in this place, but it might not work somewhere else. And so that would be the, the first thing I would say is just keep an open mind. Um, and then the next thing I would say is keep inquiring. So keep on saying, okay, this is working right now, but how can I change it so that it becomes better in the future? So as a head, like I said, the way I've, I've structured professional learning within schools in the 13 years that I've been ahead has changed significantly because something that I thought maybe was a, a good way to deliver 10 years ago, I would look back and in shame now really and think, oh gosh, that really didn't work. And in the same way, I hope that in 10 years, it'll be better again, because as a head, I will have learned more along the way. So I would say that don't, don't be too fixed in your ideas, always be available to the idea that there might be something better, always keep on reading about it. Um, and um, Dan Willingham has a great book about um, why should you trust the experts, I think it's called. And, and he says in there, when somebody tells you research shows, ask them which research always, <laughs> never, never fall for research shows. So you'll notice that I referenced earlier a Salford study to do with the classroom environment, where it's not just about lighting and acoustics because someone said it is. What does the research show us about lighting and acoustics? And again, always remembering that just because it worked in one place, it doesn't necessarily mean it will work in your school and your environment. Gareth, thank you ever so much for giving us um, the tour, but then sort of pulling the curtain back and giving us an insight into the journey that got you to where you are at the moment with the school. Um, you have done your homework for us. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've got our short slots. So tell us you're something interesting. You've got something interesting that our listeners might be interested to read. Tell us about that. Sure. So something that isn't one of the books that I've given the teachers here to read or even reference to the teachers here, I think, would be Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. So Daniel Kahneman is uh, a psychologist, but he won a Nobel Prize for economics, which sounds a little bit strange, possibly. But it's because of some of the work that he did with his professional partner that was absolutely fascinating to do with um, behavioral economics. And the book, just every single chapter that you read, you just know more about humans and how we work. And so even though it's not necessarily related to teaching as such, it's not explicitly related to teaching, it's just learning about us and our behavior and what drives us and how and why we do the things that we do. And so um, just to reference one part of that book, and I'll probably misquote it slightly, um, but it, it was something about 
um, an intelligent person and, and what Daniel Kahneman says would describe an intelligent person. And he said that you might ask a question, say, what, what's the crime like in Illinois? And then you would maybe answer, well, what do I know about Illinois? Well, I know that Chicago is in Illinois. Do I know anything about the crime rates in Chicago? Yes, I know it's quite high. And then you might think, well, it's the biggest city in Illinois. Okay, I think the crime rates in Illinois might be quite high. And But you have a reason for why you're answering in that way. Actually, I know it was Detroit now um, <laughs> and not in Illinois. And so an intelligent person, according to him, is somebody who tries to think about what I know and then use that in an intelligent way. And so even when you don't think that you know something straight off, what do you know about something that might be related to that thing? And then how can you use that? And and that's just one small part of a of an absolutely uh, an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. And finally, you've been so generous. We've had the tour. We've had biscuits. We've <laughs> had drinks. We've had an interview. We've had something interesting. And finally, we would like something to try. So something to try. So it would probably be maybe linked to the baseline of our SAQ study. With our SAQ lessons, when we did a baseline at the start of the year, one of the activities was linked to throwing and catching. But actually, it wasn't throwing and catching itself. So it was to roll a football and then a tennis ball to a child. And all they had to do was stop it. So they had to stop the football with their hands and then try and stop the tennis ball in their hands. And then you had to throw them football to catch and then the tennis ball to catch. And the teacher who was leading that part of the assessment said, but this is nonsense. Like, what, why would you do this? What a waste of time. And then about five minutes in, he came back and he said, oh my gosh, the children cannot even bend and stop a football rolling towards them. You know, this is unbelievable. And so I'd say, try that with the children in your class. Just stand three meters away from them, roll a, a football towards them and to the side of them, roll a, a tennis ball towards them and to the side of them. See how well they do with that before you even go into catching to see what's happening to our children because of their indoor sedentary lifestyles. And I think you'll be amazed with what's going on and what we then maybe should do to try and help with these things. Gareth Rain, thank you for your hospitality, your warm welcome, the biscuits, the coffee. I was going to say you finished your biscuit. I wasn't sure you were going to come I in. I have. <laughs> <laughs> and for a lovely tour of the school, yes. um, listeners, we've referenced it, but I think another something to try out there is to definitely make sure you get a tour of the school. You get it really to spark lots of questions and some really interesting discussions around how you do things, the way you do them in your school. Gareth Rain, thank you very much for your hospitality, for your generosity. I'm sure we'll have you back in the future. Um, we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. The special guest this episode was Gareth Rain, who's head teacher at St Peter's Roman Catholic Primary School in Cardiff. And thanks to Gareth for the invitation, the biscuits, the drinks and the great interview. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and tell us what you think. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>